Brian, I'm going to steal your music stand. Well, uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Derek, and glad you're here. Here's my water. We are uh, in the midst of a series on the Gospel of Mark here at Hope, and um, if you are new this first time here in this building, we're pretty new as well, so we're all kind of getting used to this. We're trying to figure out how things are set up and where the stuff is and whether or not the projector's going to work and all of that. So um, bear with us as we're working out the kinks, but um, we're glad that you're here, and we're glad that we're here. We're thankful to Goodwin Fraser for, for letting us be here. Uh, like I said, we're in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Mark, and we're really at a turning point in Mark today. Also, we couldn't crank up the basketball goal, just so... Sorry, bear with us with that one as well. Um, we're at a turning point in Mark, we're in chapter 8, and we get to really see with clarity who Jesus is, what he's come to do, what it means for us. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Mark chapter 8. We're kind of toward the end of that chapter, starting in verse 27. It's also printed in your bulletin if you would like to follow along there. Mark 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the time that we get to study it. We uh, ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts, soften us. Some of us come excited and eager, ready to hear what you have to say. Some of us come not really sure what to expect. Lord, you know where we're coming from. You know the state of our hearts. And we ask that you would move, that you would speak to us, that you would change us, Lord, that you would enable us to see Jesus more clearly today, that we might understand more his person, his work, and even our response to it. We do pray all of this in his name. Amen. I, uh, I like movies. I'm, I'm not a big kind of horror movie fan, but I like movies that are suspenseful. And uh, if you like suspenseful movies, you know kind of the, the feeling of watching a movie most of the time when you're watching a movie, you kind of have the perspective of the narrator. 
The audience just kind of gets to see all of it. We get to zoom out and see the big picture. So in that, you know, ubiquitous scene where the girl is walking toward that door where you know the monster or the slasher guy or whoever is behind the door, we know it, right? And we're like, don't go in the door, you idiot. Of course, she doesn't know what's behind the door. We have that privilege. Now, my favorite movies and stories are the ones actually where we're given the perspective kind of of the characters, where we're brought along at the same point that they are, so that at the end, when they figure it out, is the first time that we've really figured it out as well. Now, when we read the Bible, oftentimes, I, you know, we have this big picture understanding. We read it kind of like the narrator. We read it with an understanding of, oh yeah, I know where it's going, I know what's happening. And sometimes it's easy to forget that in the midst of it, these characters, they, they don't know the whole thing. This passage really in Mark 8 is, is a turning point, like I said, in, uh, in Mark. It is a really important passage because it's right about now that Jesus' disciples are starting to really kind of wonder and starting to just get little clues about these really big questions. Like, who is this Jesus guy that we've been following? And what is he really going to do? Like, why is he really here? And what's he going to do? And what, what is my part in all of this? What does all of this mean to me? Sometimes we, even those who have the big picture, need to be reminded of these things as well. We need to be reminded because we kind of forget. Sometimes we get lost in the flow of it. We forget the big picture and we feel kind of like we're the disciples right in the middle of it asking these questions again. And they're good questions for us to ask. Because these are the real and the good and the deep and the full questions that Scripture gives us. Who is Jesus? What has He come to do? And what are we supposed to do about that? That's what we're going to talk about today. That's really the way that this passage even is organized. And those are the three questions that we're going to ask. If if you want to put headings on them and write them down, you can do it this way. Uh, Identity. Jesus' identity. Who is this person? Jesus' activity. What's he come to do? And then uh, Jesus' invitation. How has he called us to be a part of that? So let's look at that first part. Jesus' identity. Listen again as Mark lays out this wonderful passage for us. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Interestingly, even before we get to the big question that Jesus asked of his disciples, who do you say that I am, he's laying the groundwork, or at least Mark is laying the groundwork for us by showing us where Jesus is. We're told that he is in a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's a town that's uh, outside, kind of around, outside of the normal place where Jesus would have been hanging out. And Caesarea Philippi is an old place, used to be uh, a place where there were people even before God's people had kind of come in in the Old Testament. In fact, they have found uh, temples to the god Baal. Maybe you remember that name from the Old Testament. Baal is oftentimes mentioned. He's kind of the enemy of God's people. You see God's prophets sometimes even going to battle with the prophets of Baal. And in this city, there was a large gathering of Baal worshippers. So we've got this old pagan kind of history of Baal worship. 
And then, of course, uh, around 300 uh, B.C., Alexander the Great comes in and conquers really most of that known territory and starts to spread uh, he starts to spread Greek culture everywhere and Greek language and Greek ideology and Greek religion. And so in this place, then, there's also a temple built to the Greek god Pan, like with the flute and everything. Uh, Pan, and so there's worship of this god Pan, this Greek god. And then, of course, when the Romans take over, they instill, you know, their own rule and authority. And it's interesting the way that the Romans would do this is that they would oftentimes allow for individual regions to have their own kind of semi-autonomous culture, which is why you see things like King Herod, the king of the Jews, working under the Roman government. Well, we need to understand that King is not really a fully autonomous king leading his own people. He's kind of a puppet king that reports to the emperor. So, this is a little bit of a history lesson. When you see that word Herod in the New Testament, it's the king of Israel, but it's the king who's working under the Roman authority. And at this point in time, there would have been five different Herods. They had kind of split up their category. Herod the Great was the first, and after him, these five different kings that each had a different territory. And the man who's over this territory is a man named Philip. Herod Philip. And so what Philip does when he kind of starts to govern this place that's had this old Baal worship and this old Pan worship as well, is he gives it a new name and he renames it Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Caesar. He's honoring his boss and he's honoring himself. Caesarea Philippi, Caesar and Philip kind of together. So it's really interesting, this place that has this old Baal worship, a temple to Baal that has a temple to Pan, and that really is governed by Caesar the emperor who took on himself the title of Lord, Kyrios, over all. He would have been worshipped as a deity in many ways. And so you kind of have this place that's really begging this question, who's in charge here? Who's really the sheriff in town? Who is the God who is in charge? Is it Baal? Is it Pan? Is it Caesar? Is it even maybe Herod? And it's into this question that Jesus asks his disciples the more pointed question. Who do people say that I am? And fascinating too the way that they answer that. What they say is, well, there's a few options here that's kind of going around. The rumor is, you may be John the Baptist. You may be uh, Elijah. Or maybe you're just one of the prophets. Those are weird answers. If you look back actually at uh, chapter 6 of Mark, those three answers have actually already come up. It's interesting. Uh, another Herod, the Herod who's over Galilee, has killed John the Baptist. Okay? Because he didn't like what he was preaching. And he starts to ask his people around him, "What? tell me about this Jesus guy. I, I, I'm getting kind of like there's this man who's around and he's kind of creating a hubbub. Who is he? And these counselors come up with three options. They're like, well, you know, here are the things that we've heard is that maybe he's John the Baptist. Or maybe he's Elijah. Or maybe he's just a prophet. And Herod says, you know what, it's probably John. And he's come back from the dead and he's haunting me. That's who it is. It's kind of a silly story. But that's the rumor going around. And so that's what the disciples tell Jesus. Here are three options. John the Baptist come back from the dead, Elijah come back from the dead, or maybe just kind of a prophet. Interestingly, all three of those have something in common. They all would have been the folks kind of laying the foundation, paving the way for the Messiah. The Old Testament prophets... And really the last Old Testament prophet, John, the whole goal was to lay the foundation for the Messiah to come. They were preparers. 
They were the ones who were clarifying the questions. They were helpful clarifiers about the question, but they weren't really the answer. And when Jesus asked this question, who do people say that I am? Peter says, I know who you are. You are the Christ. You're not the one who's laying the foundation. You're not the one who's clarifying the question. You are the answer. The Christ is really the, 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 the Greek term that would have been equivalent to the Hebrew term Messiah, the anointed one, the long-awaited king who would come and not only rule his people, but make all things right who would rule the world in justice and righteousness, who would bring all things to a good end, who would free people and make life the way that it's supposed to be, who would bring about this concept of shalom, the way that life is supposed to be. And what Peter says that's so glorious here is he says, this is the one. This is not one among many. This is not one who's coming to help clarify some questions. This is not one who's laying the foundation. This is the one, the answer. I think it's fascinating in our culture, in America. If you asked most non-churchgoers, who is Jesus? The answer that they would give you is something like this. Well, he's a great teacher. A really great man. Really somebody that is a helpful person for kind of putting together that understanding of what a spiritual life really should be. And along with a lot of other peoples, he kind of fits really in this perfect picture of people that we can look to to help clarify some of the big questions that we have. If that's your understanding of Jesus, let God's Word lean on you a little bit today. Because what Jesus says is... He is not the one among many. That He is not the one who's come to help clarify your questions. In fact, if that's the way you think of Jesus, then I would say to you, we are putting ourselves in front of Jesus at that time. Because if He's the one who's helped me clarify my questions, then who's in ultimate authority? It's me. I'm the one who gets to figure out the answers. If Jesus is one among many who kind of helps me piece together this general, this spirituality, then who's really the one that's piecing it together and drawing the picture? It's me. And Jesus, Peter says, is not one among many. Jesus is the one. In fact, I love it as one commentator translates this. He just puts that on on Peter's lips and says, you are the answer. Jesus is not the clarifier of questions. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to the biggest questions, the most fundamental human questions. If, if you've been to our Introducing Hope class, you've heard me talk about these questions before. Questions like, what is true? What is true in this world? That's a question that all human beings are asking in some way or another. And what Jesus comes and says is, I am the way and the truth and the life. I'm not a clarifier of questions. I'm the answer to that question. Another big question, who am I? What's my identity? What defines me? Where do I find my place in the world? And what Jesus says is, you are mine. I have made you mine by my life and death, by my resurrection. I have brought you into my family. If you want an identity, that's it. Who you are is a blood-bought child of Christ. If you are a Christian, that is your identity. We can answer that question faithfully. Here's another big question. How do I change? How 
How can I be a better version of who I am? How do I go about changing? You know what Jesus says? You change by abiding in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Connect yourself to me and it's actually by my grace and through my work that you will become something you are not now. That you will begin to look more and more like me. And another big final question, is there any hope in this world? Or are we just all kind of spinning our wheels? And Jesus says, I am making all things new. There is hope because I'm at work. See, Jesus is not one among many. He is not the clarifier of questions so that we can make a great decision about our lives. Jesus is the answer. He is the one. He is the Christ. That's his person. Let's move on to his work. Kind of asking that question, what has Jesus come to do? His activity. Listen to verses 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And Jesus said this plainly, that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think it's interesting, at the end of verse 30, Jesus tells his disciples, Don't tell anybody. Yes, I am the Christ, but don't tell anybody. Why do you think he says that? I actually think we get the answer in those verses I just read. Jesus tells them not to tell anybody about him being the Christ, because guess what? They have no idea what him being the Christ means. Peter makes that abundantly clear. Peter, right out of the gate, and I love Peter, because this is, he reminds me so much of myself. He just at one time, he's saying like, yes, here, I'm hitting it right down the middle. And then like two seconds later, he's like way over here getting it completely wrong. And Jesus knows, like, yes, you say I'm the Christ, but you really don't have any idea what that means. <laughs> because the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus came not just to be the one who teaches and guides and leads, but Jesus says, I actually came to die. came to suffer. Now, we can kind of feel for Jesus' disciples here. We can feel for Peter in particular. Because, you know, it's kind of odd. How is Jesus going to be the one that makes all things right if he's going to die? Here's the point. Peter's asking the wrong question. And so he's getting a different answer. See, Peter like all the disciples probably at that time, and like everybody, every Jew at that time probably, would have had the conception in his mind that the Messiah is coming to make our nation great again. The job of the Messiah is to make our nation... They may, maybe they had hats made, I don't know. But that was the question. How is the Messiah going to come and make our nation great? Or even how is the Messiah going to come? How is God going to come and free us? Free us from the rule of those people that we'd really rather not be in our country. How is God actually going to take care of those things? And how is going to make God make my government right? But you see, Jesus is saying to Peter, listen, you're asking the wrong question altogether. Because the question that needs to be asked is, how is God going to actually make my heart right? How is God going to make me right with Him? And what his disciples miss, and what we miss all the time, and what Jesus is saying to them is, listen, it can't be made right unless there is forgiveness. 
There is something wrong, not just with your culture. There is something wrong, not just with your nation. There is something wrong, not just with the idea that you feel like you're in bondage to others. There is something wrong with your heart. Because the human heart is turned against God and without His work, it is running a hundred miles an hour in the other direction. And what Jesus says throughout His Word is that He has actually come to make that right. Not just the external things, but the internal as well. If you were here uh, about a year ago, we went through a sermon series called Looking at the Cross, and we looked at all of these different ways that we can kind of see the work of Jesus on the cross. His victory, His judgment, His atonement, all of these wonderful things. And one of them that we talked about is the one that we're going to focus on today. And that is simply this. Forgiveness. We need to be forgiven. And Jesus, as the one, the answer, the Messiah, has come to forgive us. There's an interesting question, I think, that oftentimes pops up in our heads. You've probably asked it before, maybe verbally, maybe just silently. And it's this, like, why can't God just kind of forget about it? Why can't God just forget about sin and kind of sweep it under the rug a little bit or just put it aside? Why can't we just not deal with this whole death thing and Jesus dying? Why did Jesus actually have to die? And the answer to the question is because somebody always has to deal with the wrong. Someone always has to eat the sin. We see this in our lives all of the time. If you crash your car, you want the other person who ran into your car to pay for your car. And that's just the way that life works. We want retribution in some ways. Even if you are going to forgive somebody, though, there's still someone who's eating the cost. Uh, Think about, you know, the financial crisis that we had a few years back. And we had really all of these enormous banks in tremendous debt and not able to handle it. Well, the solution, of course, was that the government or you and I, the taxpayers, were going to take care of it and bail them out. Well, we ate the costs, right? And the same thing happens personally. If somebody comes and runs into your fence or their dog chews up your, uh, your outside furniture, you can say, listen, don't worry about it. All is forgiven. You don't have to pay for it. But it doesn't mean that the furniture is not chewed up anymore. It doesn't mean that the fence is fixed. I've got to fix it. I've got to bear the cost. I've got to bear the weight of it. Somebody always has to eat the sin. Somebody always has to bear the cost. And that is what Jesus is saying to us and to his disciples is, somebody always has to bear the the cost. We are, in our, on our own, at enmity with God, separated from Him. We have offended Him and sinned against Him. And what Jesus is saying to His disciples and to us is, someone has to take care of that. And I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to bear the cost on my own. Even though I'm the one who was offended. Even though I've done no wrong in myself. I am going to take the sin. That is something that his disciples had a hard time with. It's something that we have a hard time with too. Let me just say, if if there is a thought in your mind that you bear some of the cost of your sin, then there's a misunderstanding about the gospel. In fact, I think in Jesus' words, I would say, you've got your mind set on the things of men and not on God. Because if it's Jesus plus anything else, the whole equation is wrong. 
Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He has done it all for us. He has taken the weight on Himself. And for us to think that we could or can or need to bear some of it is a misunderstanding of the good news. It's no longer good news if we're bearing it, friends. It's no longer good news at all. That is what Jesus has come to do. As who He is, the Christ, the only one who has come to lay Himself down for us. That's His activity. Let's just finish out then with that invitation. What's our part in it? How do we respond to this? We'll look again at verses 34 and 35. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. How do we respond to this? Well, the simple answer that's simple to say and not so simple to do is a life of self-denial and cross-bearing. A life that is denying our own selves and taking up following Jesus and even the life that He uh, has exhibited for us in sacrifice. It is denying our own personal lordship our own personal autonomy, and it is actually saying, you know what, there's new management in town. <laughs> and that is the authority that I come under now. It is laying aside the, the times that we so often are drawn to self-direction and actually are directed then by Jesus. And then this added to it as well. It's also an understanding, a new understanding of a radically different view of the good life. We could put it this way. It's committing to Jesus in times that require courage and sacrifice, and it's understanding that this sacrifice is the way to being made more like Jesus. See, it's a, it's a different approach to understanding who guides us, and it's a different approach to understanding really what victory means. A new understanding of the reality of the battle, and a new understanding of what victory is. This is true, interestingly, I think, in all kinds of times. This is what's so beautiful about that. Because in times of difficulty, for us to understand that it's going to take a courage and a sacrifice that I often don't have, that's a message we need to hear so that we don't cave under difficulty. But it's a message we actually need to hear in times of prosperity, too. Because so oftentimes we actually are equating kind of physical prosperity, the accumulation even of nice things in our lives, with this idea that God is somehow happy with us. Friends, that is not a biblical category. That's actually antithetical to the Bible's truths. Jesus never says that. In fact, what he says is that the victory in your life is going to look a lot like the victory in my life. And that's laying your life down. That's actually finding your life in sacrifice. Let me close just with a couple of things, uh, kind of what, what we can take home from this. And, and the first is this, is that if you haven't recognized the uniqueness of who Jesus is, if there is something in your mind that says, you know, Jesus is the, he's a clarifier of questions for me, but he's not really the answer. Or if you haven't realized the sacrifice that Jesus has made, if you haven't seen the love that he has displayed and called you into, then let me invite you into that today. To actually see that Jesus has forgiven your sin through his death. That he has been raised to new life to give you new life. That he has shown you the love that will actually 
keep you from looking for love to fill you in so many other places. If you don't know that, let me invite you into it today. And then secondly, for those who do know it, let me just say that there's a, there's a common understanding, you know, that, uh, that giving up our own autonomy, that giving up our own freedom is actually becoming enslaved to another. Is actually giving up any kind of ability we, ability we have and uh, uh, freedom that we have. And honestly, that's true. <laughs> it's true that as we, are come, and as we are called to come and deny ourselves, that we are called to give up our freedom. But let me say this. Is that if you are finding your value or your worth in the way that you look and how much you weigh and what other people think of you, then guess what? You're not free. You're actually bound by the chains of the idolatry of beauty and perception in the world. If you are finding your worth and value in your achievements, in your business, in the multiple promotions that you have, in the size of your house, in the niceness of your car, then guess what? You're not free. You're actually living bound by the idolatry of success. And what Jesus is calling us to, even in denying ourselves, is actually a life that frees us from those things. That frees us to be able to say, my identity, my worth, my value is found in Jesus alone. And I don't have to be a slave to these other things. I don't have to be bound in chains to these other idols. Because it's Jesus who has given himself for me. That is a message whose only response is a life that's lived with Christ at the center. A life that is lived in beautiful response to the most amazing love you've ever seen. That is the love we've been given, and it's the love we're called to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, uh, again, just the way that you have displayed to us um, who you are, what you've done for us, how we can even come and follow you. Well, we do confess that we oftentimes get those things wrong or we get them confused. We don't really understand them well. Lord, pray that you would speak through this passage today. That we might come to see your identity and your activity with your invitation more clearly today. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.